I think the underbelly that I hear and I feel in myself too is if I'm not known, seen, out there, succeeding, um, then I have to face my own shame. I have to face my own emptiness, my own insecurity, my own inadequacy. So if I'm not ego inflated, I'm ego deflated. And as I tell Mm. my students often, it seems like we don't know what it means to, to live from a center space. We either live in ego inflation or deflation. Welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt, and I'm part of the Wellspring staff team. As a pastor for almost 30 years in several different churches, from small to large, in different roles, it's been my privilege to see ministry from the inside out. And now, as a part of Wellspring, I'm part of an organization that seeks to come alongside pastors and leaders of various kinds to help bridge the disconnect that often exists between our inner and outer life. We wanna help you pay attention to your soul, that deepest part of you that's so easily overlooked and sometimes neglected. So we're inviting you into the conversations that we'll be having, not only for yourself, but for your leadership and with a variety of different kinds of thinkers, pastors, leaders, and others. We hope these will be helpful to you. Our conversation today is with Chuck DeGroat. Chuck is a follower of Jesus, a husband to Sarah for 26 years, father to two amazing daughters. Chuck's a professor of counseling and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's a licensed therapist and spiritual director, leads retreats and speaks. He, about a decade ago, founded the New Begin House of Studies in San Francisco and serves there still as a senior fellow. He also started two church-based counseling centers. He's written several books, including Leaving Egypt, Finding God in Wilderness Places, another one called Toughest People to Love, a third book on wholeheartedness, a vision of wholeness amidst our perfectionism and shame-based culture, and also a Lenten devotional called Falling into Goodness. His latest book, which we'll be talking about today, is When Narcissism Comes to Church, where he diagnoses a profound challenge and problem in our churches and among clergy, and he offers a helpful life-giving way forward. I think you're going to enjoy and appreciate the conversation today with Chuck DeGroat. Well, Chuck, it is so good to see you as I'm looking at you on Zoom, but also to talk to you today. And um, I am so grateful for, honestly, your friendship over these last few years, but also your voice in the church. And how necessary and needed and, and timely, even this this latest book of yours um, on narcissism of of all things, but how it's striking striking a chord. Um, and I mean, did you did you expect this to to be like wow um, the kind of um, I don't know I don't know if it's a lightning rod <laughs> yeah, or not, right. but just did, did you know okay this is yeah. this is going to strike a chord? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's good to be with you too. I wish we were having a coffee or a beer or something in Santa Cruz, but here we are. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, you know, so I I wasn't sure how it would land. I, I I've written a few other books, and so I sort of have mentally gotten to this place where if it sells or doesn't sell, what it, even does that mean compared to like all the big books sell? You know, in the, in the Christian world, 
don't expect to sell a ton of books, but right. so I, I go in sort of with my hands open with this thinking, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think that uh, this is something that's timely and that we ought to be talking about. But at the same time, I mean, uh, we, we right two weeks before the book came out, COVID happened and right. stay at home order. And so, but yeah, I think to answer your question, I have been, um, I've been pretty overwhelmed by the kinds of conversations this has generated. Like I was literally before this on a podcast with an atheist with a nationally syndicated kind of audience talking about um, narcissism from his perspective, trying to understand what, why is this a conversation in the church and why are Christians, um, see, why do Christians seem to support narcissistic leaders politically and pastorally? And so it's generated all sorts of interesting conversations. And I, I don't quite know how many books I've sold, but probably a few more than the last one I wrote on wholeheartedness. No one wants to talk about apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think it's true, Chuck, that people think, well, narcissism, that's certainly somebody else's problem. Not, I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess it'd be interesting to how many people would, would be self-diagnosed narcissists that are yeah. picking up your yeah. book. I don't know. That'd be fascinating. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think there is some of that. I mean, I, um, I think it's probably for some, it's a more general conversation. They're just curious about, about some of the big falls from grace among the, you know, some of the big names that we've heard about over the last number of years. I know for others, it's really personal. They've experienced abuse, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, or they're trying to figure out they're working with a, maybe a lead pastor or an organizational leader or a church planter where they're experiencing this. And I, so I get emails, um, it, what the hardest thing in this season has been getting regular emails and and quite a few each week from people who share their story in depth because I want to honor people's stories. I want to read and I want to respond, but but just hearing people say, I don't know what to do, help. There's no one I've been to a therapist, no one knows these dynamics. It doesn't seem like people understand narcissism or abuse in the church. Yeah, let's so let's back up a second just in case. So for those, I mean, narcissism is a word that's. It seems like even just in the last few years has suddenly caught uh, our interest and awareness, and it, it can be a label that could be easily applied or probably perhaps too readily, or 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 not. But so for you, Chuck, what, how would you define or describe perhaps? Uh, and I know you do this in your book, but just for our audience, how do you describe a narcissistic leader or just a narcissist? Yeah. So um, the general sort of the general clinical definition gets at things like grandiosity. Um, so a, a, a egocentric sort of self-aggrandizement, um, entitlement. Um, I get whatever I want, whenever I want it. Um, a big one is a lack of empathy. That's one that mm. people don't always expect that someone who's truly narcissistic really doesn't know how to get into the shoes of someone else and understand their experience. Mm. And then often like clinically, you're looking for what um, what they call impairments um, in identity and intimacy. That just basically means that in your relationships, um, in your work, in and around you, there will be disruption. Um, and uh, so when as a clinician, when I begin to check a number of these boxes and when I see the severity of these things, I, I begin to sniff out narcissism. Now, now with narcissistic leadership or pastoring, um, I go into this in a little bit more depth because then we see more specific kinds of behaviors or symptoms that show up. Um, 
in in micromanaging, not being able to delegate, being eccentric, um, constantly shifting expectations, um, mm. faking vulnerability, or talking generally about sin, but not really able to be honest, having uh, too high of a, an opinion of himself. We get to see more specific features in narcissistic Christian leaders, but that's the general kind of uh, clinical version of it. Got it. Yeah. And and so you might have someone though that what that could be you know clinically diagnosed, but there could also be someone that that just exhibits tendencies or or you know is a narcissistic type. Would you say that that's probably more common? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's on a spectrum. And so mm. when you when you talk about the spectrum, we move from a, a kind of style to a type, uh, a narcissistic type to narcissistic disorder. And so it might just be that uh, a, a leader shows up with confidence and with some sense of uh, security. And, and you look at him and say, wow, I don't have that kind of self-confidence. Doesn't necessarily mean he's narcissistic. Just because his church is big or her church is big doesn't necessarily mean that uh, she's narcissistic. Uh, it it, it what's really interesting, and this is a, maybe a, a further conversation that you may want to pursue, is in probably hundreds and hundreds of psychological assessments that I've done over the years, by and large, uh, women and men who are candidates for ministry and in particular church planners test on the narcissistic spectrum. Maybe not wow. disorder, but the large majority test in the kind of general cluster of narcissistic personalities. Mm. Wow. So there, there's something about, is it, I mean, I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg kind of a thing. Is it something about the kind of role? And you talk a little bit about it in the book too. Like this is a person that's going to stand up in front of other people and speak for God. I mean, you either have to, either have to just be in denial or, or, or yeah. just like, yeah, I, I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a colleague saying that to me when I first started this work, he said something like, you know, how many people, uh, in, in a world where like 90% of people don't want to get on stage and do public speaking, uh, we've got people here who actually want to do that. And they actually want to say, this is the word of the Lord. Um, and so that's, that's pretty bold. Yes. Um, there are, uh, in terms of like personality disorders, there are three clusters. One is more eccentric and one is more kind of avoidant. And the other one is more dramatic um, interpersonally kind of arrogant, obnoxious. And, and it just so happens that that's the cluster where most pastors test. And I'm talking about like 90% plus test in that cluster. And so it does wow. say something about now, again, not necessarily narcissistic personality disorder. Um, but it does say something about the kind of general spectrum that we find ourselves on and who makes for a good pastor, someone who has some um, woo, some confidence, mm -hmm. some chutzpah, as, as we used to say growing up on Long Island, um, uh, <laughs> some energy, some influential kind of extroverted energy, things like that, that probably in, in some ways seem to go a long way toward showing giftedness for ministry, but also can cut the opposite way as well. Yeah, that's uh, it's interesting because it seems like that's the other thing. And I don't know if this is it seems like a more recent cultural church cultural phenomenon is it used to be we think of the parish pastor. And I think you talk about that again in your book is that that somebody who's just sort of steady, humble, self-effacing, not not a big deal. But now it seems like it's not just that 
that pastors are more like this is that we want our leaders to be more this uh, draw a crowd, be a big, bigger than life personality, be a, you know, um, yeah, we we're complicit in this too, aren't we? As, as far as in the church as a whole, like not just, not just the leaders, it's the system. Yeah, I think so. The system. And I think it's taken on a unique shape and kind of more of a contemporary North American context, you know, where, uh, where I think we've, we've sort of, we're paralleling developments in the business world and in entrepreneurship and in, um, there's a, there's a sense in which uh, it's like Christianity Inc. nowadays, you know, and mm. I think that the kinds of leaders we want look a lot like uh, corporate um, uh, CEOs and founders. And I mean, you, you live in the Bay Area. I used to live in the Bay Area. Uh, they can kind of, especially church planners can kind of look like that. The, yeah. the interesting thing about this, though, is I, I don't do this in, explicitly in the book, but I sort of trace a lot of this back to... Um, Christianity sort of merger with the empire and Constantine, you know, in this sense that Constantine mm-hmm. looks in the sky and sees the cross with the words in this sign conquer. And he knows he's got an infrastructure of priests and bishops and Pope and all, you know, to do, to do his bidding. And so I think power, the unique relationship of Christians to power is a really important part of this conversation and what we do with that power. And that's not necessarily, it's not always bad, but it is something that we need to have a conversation about. Absolutely. And in fact, we don't seem to be very uh, self-suspicious or suspicious of our complicitness in power. I mean, you've a book that just came out this summer that you've recommended my wife just absolutely devoured was uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. And uh, wow, that's uh, sobering, you know, to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the larger conversation is how narcissism is a kind of energy and a fuel behind any kind of movement of grandiosity, even, you know, even movements that that uh, sort of uh, make me complicit. Like I'm a 50 year old white male, you know, and I think about mm-hmm. white supremacy and, and how there's so many like me who are afraid that we're losing power. And I know that's broader than the conversation that we're in right now, but it's it's sort of like. Anytime that we've got a sort of uncomfortably close relationship to power and we're holding on tight, we, we ought to alarm bells ought to go off and we ought to say, yeah. wait a second, what's going on inside of me and inside of us as Christians? Absolutely. I've got so many ways we can go in this conversation and I'm, yeah. my mind's spinning. But uh, you also talk about that this is has become more um, pronounced in recent Yes. Years in, yeah. in both in American culture and in the church. And you talk about like church planting and this yes. is a, so a, a, a virtually endemic almost. Yeah. In, even in what we're, we seem to be looking for in church planters, right? Yeah. 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 I think so. I mean, I, I started to, to, to get a whiff of this probably in the early 2000s when I was a, I was a younger pastor. I was a therapist. I was beginning to do a little bit of work with church planter assessment and, mm-hmm. um, recognizing that uh, there's a, a caricature that you're looking for. There's a kind of guy in my circles that you're looking for. And you've got, you've got your inventories that uh, reveal gifts, but I've got my inventory that actually takes, maybe has a different spin or different take on what you call gifts, you know, and maybe, mm. maybe invites us to ask deeper questions about character, humility, and maturity. And I remember in those conversations, the first sense of ha- butting heads a little bit with church planting assessors around like, well, you know, you psychologists, you're always looking for the 
the negative stuff, you know, and we, we really trust that this guy has what it takes to do big things. And then what ended up happening was two or three years later, I get a, another phone call and it would be, Hey, you remember the flags that you raised about so-and-so we're beginning to see some warning signals, warning signs. Can you, can you help us think through this? And, um, when I started doing assessments more in earnest, now I've done hundreds of assessments, I began seeing patterns, you know, particularly in, in church planting. Um, but then I think the development of social media and the the kind of the pull toward having a platform and having an influence and um, it's intoxicating. And when you talk to leaders and, and, you know, you've been a lead pastor and you've been in and around this world for a long time. So I'd be curious to hear your take on it. But I think the underbelly that I hear and I feel in myself too, is if I'm not known, seen out there succeeding, um, then I have to face my own shame. I have to face yeah. my own emptiness, my own insecurity, my own inadequacy. So if I'm not ego inflated, I'm ego deflated. And as I tell mm. my students often, it seems like we don't know what it means to, to live from a center space. We either live in ego inflation or deflation. A lot of people might not um, intuitively consider uh, narcissism as tied into shame, because it's it it, it just it, it doesn't necessarily ring immediately true. But then when you kind of peer under the surface, talk a little bit about how does that how does shame factor in for a narcissistic yeah. tendency? Yeah, and this this part I want to acknowledge this part of the conversation sometimes gets uncomfortable for people who've been abused by narcissistic mm. leaders, and mm. I I uh, I get those emails too where. Chuck, it seems like you're trying to working really hard to humanize narcissists when they've done a whole hell of a lot of damage, to be honest, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, so I want to be sensitive and just sort of acknowledge that when, when I talk about there's a, a psychological conversation, theological conversation to be had around shame, but it's it's a sensitive one. And that's that, that um, every bully has been bullied. Um, every person who hurts has experienced hurt. And that's just... I can say that with a fair degree of confidence. There's, there's a nature nurture component. There's a disposition, but th there's also, um, there's also stories of pain, abuse, yeah. abandonment, neglect. Mm. And when I, if I ever have moments of really kind of getting down to the story, and most narcissists are so armored because they don't want to be vulnerable, so they'll mm. never open themselves up. But if we ever get there, and it's rare, it's. When I was eight years old, I was fill in the blank, you know, and it's mm. always a story of profound pain. And so I understand why they armor themselves up because they, they, um, they're afraid of their own vulnerability, limitations. Um, they fear what can be done to them. So it's mm. hurt or be hurt, bully or be bullied. Um, and that's kind yeah. of the dynamic. Yeah. And so they're covering over and they're, and they would not be necessarily even aware, uh, and probably aren't even aware that they're covering shame. They're, and I think that the other particular um, danger, perhaps, or susceptibility in the church, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is we're able to justify narcissistic behavior. We wouldn't even call it that because we're saying, well, it's all for this righteous cause, right? It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's not, it's not, it's not that I need the platform. It's I, I need the platform so that Jesus can be made known and made great. And so it's not, it's it, we're able to, I don't know if that's a, a way of hiding it or just, or, or defending it, but 
it seems like that that's the tricky part, right? It's like, oh, no, it's not about me. And yet, so how do you recognize when that person is really actually about them yeah. and not so much the yeah. gospel? Yeah, yeah. I had this conversation recently with someone who uh, was on the inside of a very large church in ministry. And she said, uh, you know, every week he'd say, I just want to bring glory to Jesus. I just want to elevate mm-hmm. Jesus. And it took me I think she, 15 years, something like that for me to realize that he was elevating himself and Jesus was just the product that allowed him to elevate himself. And that's a really, I think this is where, uh, when we see narcissism in like a corporate CEO, it it feels really different because when we're talking about a pastor, um, and when we're talking about the church, we will see fruits that look good. You know, wow, they're having impact on the community or people have come to know Jesus or um, whatever it might be. Right. And so, and then they, there are also titles and authority, like master of divinity. He's mastered <laughs> divinity. You know, she's reverend, whatever it might be. And so mm. we, we defer in ways that we might not defer to like a, a corporate leader. Um, and, and that's, I think when, this is why I talk a lot about spiritual abuse and emotional abuse, because I think that's where people become really confused because he has had such an impact on my life. His preaching has changed my life, has changed my marriage, changed my family. How can I reconcile the fact that he was um, abusing women uh, on staff over the years? How can I reconcile the fact that uh, he's secretly addicted to pornography? How can I reconcile the fact that there's this you know, a debris field of former church staff members who've left over the years because of his uh, grandiosity and his bullying. Absolutely. And that that's the and that's the justification part, isn't it? Or the the excuse making or reason giving, however you want to call it, is that so many narcissistic type leaders are at least externally can be often very effective, right? Or at least effective in terms of drawing a crowd or, and truly do make an impact on people. Right. And, and then the other piece, and I think this is, I think this is your term, Chuck, is faux, vulnerability, faux, like, because, because some people hearing this might say, oh no, no, man, I'm vulnerable or my leader or this person, they're vulnerable. I've seen them cry. I've seen them. Um, so how Talk a little bit about that, you know, what's real vulnerability and kind of the, I don't know, it seems vulnerable, it really isn't. Yeah. So you, I I wonder if you've seen the same evolution that I have where I remember, I was talking to a guy yesterday, in fact, uh, who I knew back in Orlando and he reminded me of one of the first like talks that I gave, I was probably a 30 year old pastor was on pornography at University Presbyterian Church in Orlando. And he said, you know, you talked in that, um, in that. Uh, and he remembered specifically about how most pastors are not very vulnerable. And, um, and I said, you know, I, I've evolved on that in the sense of back then, no one wanted to have these conversations. Now it seems that uh, I meet a lot more pastors who are more psychologically attuned and they're conversant with the Enneagram and they mm-hmm. talk generally about their sin and they'll even get up and they'll say, you know, I just, I, I struggle in my marriage and I, you know, I know I'm not the best leader in my home or whatever it might be. And it will sound vulnerable so that people will say, wow, I've never seen someone that with that much integrity and that much honesty. And yet behind the scenes, um, you don't see that at all. And oftentimes it's the staff members, colleagues who see the kind of the real side, you know, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dynamic of like, 
Mm. Uh, I see the I see the invulnerable bully who mm. doesn't open up when I share something like, "Hey, I want I want to share with you how I've experienced you," who who doesn't receive my invitation or doesn't mm. respond with curiosity, but responds by isolating me or putting me in my place or firing me even. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I had a conversation with actually the uh, as a as spiritual director, I have a supervisor. And one of the things we were talking about a couple months ago is I was trying to uh, discern whether to share something personal with a directee with someone about myself as in response to something of them. And, and it, I think his response was so helpful to me. He just said, I think you have to ask yourself, why would you share that? Who is that? For? And his question is just simple. Who is that for? And sometimes it's like, if I'm going to be vulnerable, is it, is it to be seen as vulnerable? Or is it just to be genuine? You know, is it, I just genuinely want to relate or or take the pastor off the pedestal, so to speak, uh, role, or is it, no, I, I want them to, to perceive me in a certain way. And again, we have to do that internal work and wrestle honestly. Yeah. yeah. I get that. Mm. I get that in my, in my work. Uh, so I was a pastor, but now I'm a seminary prof. And um, by and large, I think my students would say I'm a, I'm a vulnerable person. Uh, mm-hmm. Chuck shares things in class that are really honest and beautiful. Well, I will often say to them, Hey, I'm being open with you, but I'm not being vulnerable. Um, Mm. I do vulnerability with my friend, Kyle, with my friend and pastor, John. Um, That's where I share the real time. Let me tell you what happened uh, this morning um, in a fight with Sarah. I, I tell you all things about uh, mishaps and failures and struggles more generally. And it's really safe. And they're surprised by that, you know, because they're Mm. not used to, leaders or teachers doing that kind of thing. But I, I don't want to inadvertently set them up to think that this is vulnerability. And so that's where I, wow. I think it's important to make the distinction between openness and vulnerability. And I think I'm not actually saying to pastors, hey, you ought to do that from the pulpit or from the stage or whatever it might <laughs> be. But I, I do wonder for most of these folks who get up and share more generally, if there is, well, what I found actually, just to be honest, is no one really knows them. Uh, there, there isn't mm. really a confidant, a friend, a mentor, anyone who really knows what's what's going on. And I mean, you you know, you've seen it, a number of suicides in the last year or two. Um, yeah. And that's not a new thing. I remember uh, speaking for Redeemer uh, Church's City to City Conference back in 2008, I think. And there were a mm. rash of suicides in the, the PCA back in the day. And people were asking, why is this happening among some of our best and brightest? And that's the question. Perhaps some might be listening to this and say, boy, I don't know. I wonder if I I have narcissistic tendencies or if I might be a narcissist. Of course, the the tricky part be, but like if they were, they might not be that interested in discovering that. But if they think if someone's listening to this and thinking uh, maybe I, I that is me or it could be me, what would you say to that person right now? Yeah, that's always a tricky one because I, mm. you know, I'm prone to saying I have said a lot. You know, if if you're asking the question, that's probably a pretty good sign that you're not narcissistic. Um, mm. So, but I had a re- <laughs> recent experience where someone came to me and said. Well, I've heard you, I heard a podcast that you did where you said, you know, if someone's asking the question and I, you know, I'm, I'm asking the question and, 
but it was a it was a complete sort of play um around you know look at me i'm asking the question i'm so <laughs> humble and i'm so special i'm so special and it was uh I, I was I was immediately I was sitting there I didn't say anything out loud but I was sort of observing the dynamics and um, not a, a day or two later I got a phone call from someone who knew this person really well to say hey uh, our church would like to hire you to kind of root out a narcissistic culture here and um, and so now I, I mean I I don't want to live my life suspiciously you know but I realize that we I know my own heart well enough to know that I can take these things and really twist them pretty quickly to, mm. to be self-serving. And um, I think curiosity is a big deal. I think when I do a yeah. psychological assessment and uh, I use a tool called the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory. And um, so if someone spikes up into the, the category of personality disorder, I don't assume immediately that they are NPD. Uh, or histrionic personality disorder, which is a close cousin or one of those, I um, I start to kind of ask questions in in and around this or about this, and um, I look for resistance. and mm. And um, sometimes people will say to me, "Oh gosh, that's really really hard to hear." Some version of this, like, mm. um, "What does that mean?" Uh, I I want to if that's true, I want to figure out what to do. What do I do, Chuck? You know. Um, mm. That's very different than the other response that I sometimes get, which is some version of, I knew it. I knew that as soon as they put me with a psychological assessor, uh, you'd come along and you'd use some clinical test, which is probably anti-scriptural to, you know, to wow. read something into me. And the bottom line is you just don't want gifted people to serve the Lord. You just want to cut people down and, you, you know, it's a whole thing. Wow. Um, and, okay. and, and maybe that's, you know, I get some, some in the middle there too, but mm. that's what I'm looking for is the curiosity versus resistance. Well, that term, Chuck, and I've, I've heard you use it in other settings and I've just found that term and obviously what it represents is so significant is curiosity. Am I curious about how other people experience me? Am I curious about uh, why someone is the way they are or why they, instead of just wanting to slap a label on or defend or project or whatever it is, that curiosity is so essential and to cultivate it, right? Yeah, that's it. And and it begins, I think, with um, you said you asked the question, how do you experience me? I think it, it begins in relationship when you have folks around you who you're willing to hear from. It's hard sometimes. I, I know when I, you know, I tell the story sometimes of a student who came up last fall and said, I hear you talking about presence and availability and vulnerability. And then I, what I see um, when you're walking around down in the atrium here in the seminary is you're always getting from one place to the other. You've always got a lot going on. You don't feel very present to me. Um, wow. And so, so you, you failed him and got rid of him immediately, right? For so I said, to offer you. I said, this means you're going to get an F in your class. And, uh, <laughs> Good. That'll show him. No, I, I think my next question was, um, are you willing to say more about that? Um, and, uh, no explanation. No. Well, Hey, you don't understand. I'm just really busy. And mm. by the way, why are you spending so much time looking at me? You know, no, <laughs> I think it's at that point where we stop and we listen and we ask more mm. questions and we ask how that impacted them. And we, um, we have some conversation about, well, so where do we go from here? You know, I think, so mm. doing this in the context of relationship, I think cultivating your own emotional and spiritual health, your own emotional intelligence that mm. means engaging self-awareness. 
Uh, that's a big part of it, knowing your own story, knowing, you know, some of the impact of your family of origin um, and how that's influenced you. All these things are really helpful for uh, gaining curiosity. How did we just talked about shame? How does shame um, play itself out in my my life and my being and my story? One are times when I feel shame in my body and, you know, I'll do that with my students now. So where, mm. when do you feel shame in your body? Um, mm. I, I tell, I told the story of um, how in, in class I was uh, beginning to tell a little bit of, of a earlier ministry experience and I started feeling it come over me like shame. Mm. I, I don't, you probably have experienced this Richard where like, it's just, for me, it just started from the top of my head and it came down over my face and my neck yes. and my body Absolutely. And I said to my class right in the moment, I am experiencing a lot of anxiety and a lot of shame right now. And part of me wants to run out and I don't want to do that. Maybe wow. this is one of those moments where we can actually, I'll, first of all, I said, I, 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 I need you guys just to um, say that's okay. First of all, wow. that, that I'm okay saying this out loud. And, and it was a class obviously that I could have trusted with this, but mm. And then they allowed me to sort of work my way through this and they were with me and they asked questions. And, but I mean, I think it's asking the question, how do I experience shame? And, and then modeling how to talk about these things with people too, you know? I, I think that's so true. And I, I don't, you know, I think both genders obviously experience shame and uh, dramatically, but I think of, uh, you know, men and shame. I think that seems particularly in our culture, difficult to name, um, I had a, my, I, as you talked about that, I had an experience a few years ago with the pastor that I uh, worked for, and I had known him for a long time. I shared with him what I thought was a relatively minor, you know, hey, when this happened, when you spoke to me this way, when this happened, I was embarrassed. I uh, that that hurt my feelings. Something along those lines. I thought was relatively minor. His response. Uh, through me dramatically, where he, instead of acknowledging that, what he actually immediately did was say, well, you haven't expressed gratitude to me for X, Y, and Z. And, and you didn't do this. And, and I didn't, wasn't able to, I, the, that very physical sensation you're describing, I started feeling from the top of my head down. And I felt like, almost like my, my skin felt like it was almost on fire. My nodded, my stomach nodded up. I suddenly felt like I wanted to crawl into a hole. I didn't know what it was. I suddenly felt afraid. But now I look back and say, yes, there was fear and anxiety, but there was shame. And I also realized that's exactly what he was intending to do. Yeah. I that later too. Well, but that was, that's... and that was his flight from his own shame, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. bully, you bully or you stop and you process the experience inside of you of, of feeling overwhelmed. And, and, and chances are, I don't know his story, but chances are he hadn't done the work of getting to a place where he could hold that, you know, and that, you right. know how it goes. It takes a lot of work to get to a place where you can, someone sits down and starts saying these things about you, you know, I, and it's really yeah. hard, really hard. It is. Yeah. Okay, so Chuck, let's say I'm uh, recognizing on the other side that my boss or my pastor or I'm in a church and uh, boy, I, I may be serving or serving alongside or under a narcissistic leader. What do I do? I mean, yeah. run, get out of there. Yeah. Um, what do I need? What should I, how should I respond? 
Yeah. So this is this is a complicated question because we're talking about all kinds of like pastoral scenarios that that people encounter. I mean, I do think that there are scenarios where people experience sexual abuse or or the kind mm-hmm. of abuse that um, that I think uh, is best is best responded to by calling the police, you know, Mm, um, alerting the authorities. I mean, I think, I think that there are certain kinds of narcissistic behavior and abuse. I think about some of the work I've done in, in Catholic circles, uh, where there's been sexual abuse and, and, and those contexts and women I've talked to or young men I've talked to who are abused by priests who didn't, Mm. because he was an authority, didn't, uh, raise the red flag, didn't call the police. Um, a lot of what, on the other hand, a lot of what people experience is a more generic kind of everyday, um, but nevertheless, really powerful and potent abuse um, called psychological abuse or emotional abuse mm. or spiritual abuse, mm. where there aren't any um, physical bruises, there there aren't any cuts underneath the eye, there's not a you know punch in the face, but there it feels that way, you know, it feels yeah. like death by a thousand blows, and um, mm. talk to a lot of folks, churches, staff members who said it's been 10 years like that. Um, I just been taking blow after blow. He demeans, he minimizes, he condescends, he makes me feel crazy. It's always my fault, whatever it might be. Wow. That's where a couple of things need to happen. One, the first thing, the primary thing is that person really needs to, to, to get care for themselves first. Um, Mm -hmm. I think before they go and raise a red flag or talk to an elder or even talk to that pastor, you, you've got to get your own care. You've got to recognize your own trauma um, until you mm. get to a place where you feel ready in conversation with um, a professional who understands trauma till you feel ready to be able to have any kind of larger conversation that you need to have. Um, you shouldn't have it because, mm. um, well, I know from early on in my own experience, I learned that the hard way where uh, I thought I was brave enough and bold enough to say the hard thing and um, lost my job for doing it. Um, But I think also I brought a lot of my own unhealth into that situation. And so I was probably exacerbating it by taking on a leader who had narcissistic tendencies. And so Hmm. rather than do that, I would say, don't make the mistake I made. Um, Go and see a therapist, spiritual director, someone who gets these kinds of dynamics and do the work to get to a place where you can then ask the question, as someone did a number of years ago, came to me and said, hey, I've it's taken me three years in therapy to process the fact that I'm working for a narcissistic leader. And now mm. I'm beginning to see the debris field of pain in the organization. I'm ready. Uh, if you're ready to work with us, I'm ready to do some of the work we need to do to bring about conversation and maybe healing. Um, and that way, we're able to go into that situation much more clearly um, with a real focused plan that was non-reactive and thoughtful. Um, but that takes some work, some internal work to get there. Well, I guess I, I at, a, at a, maybe almost a more personal question, Chuck, how do you keep yourself from getting overly discouraged when you see so much of this and it gets so uh, destructive and prevalent in today's church? How do you, how do you stay hopeful about the church, about the gospel? Um. I, I do get sucked down into just <laughs> discouragement. Um, I think I I think that especially in times when I see this, um, I see systems and structures that are part and parcel of this. Not just one-off mm. narcissistic leaders, but when I see how um, 
when I when I see how evangelicalism in general uh, has a has a, a pretty comfortable relationship with power um, and and uh, a narcissistic wielding of power at times, it gets really uncomfortable and really yeah. uh, it can get dark. And I think um, if I if I didn't have a deep uh, sort of encounter with the Jesus of the Gospels, you know, and mm. and how Jesus shows up, I think. And, and if I ha- hadn't seen this story played out a thousand times in Old Testament narratives, you know, as, mm. hey, we want a king. Um, we, we want something fashioned in our own image. We want something that we can touch, taste, feel, feel like we, we want something to control, something to give us power. Mm. We don't want you as king, uh, God. We we want our own king. If I hadn't seen that story play out a thousand times, I, um, I think it would be pretty hopeless. But I think that there, there are a couple of things. One is that this is seems to be kind of how the story goes. Mm-hmm. Um, another is I'm a part of that story. I'm implicated in, in that story and my own participation in, in these systems. And, um, and then a, a third thing is that I think as I get clear and as we get clear and talking about these things and diagnosing them and having honest conversations, I see people rise up courageously to, uh, to, to, um, to do the things that they need to do to dismantle old ways and old systems and rebuild, you know? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the bigger th- question I have right now is about a larger dismantling that needs to take place culturally. I'm talking about in terms of Christian our Christian subculture um, in our institutions, in our churches around our relationship to power um, yeah. and how we've narrated our story. And that's a much larger conversation. Um, uh, I'm I'm feeling hopeful because people have responded well to the kind of conversation that we're having about yeah. narcissistic leadership. I'm feeling um, a bit intimidated when it comes to the larger conversation about Christianity's uh, conflation with power and empire and things like that. That's 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 the Christian. Du- have Christian Demay on your podcast, and you can get into sure. that. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, it's an important, it's extremely important uh, conversation, and especially one that we're seeing played out in this election cycle and uh, in such really, I mean, not just head scratching, I think heart rending way. Well, uh, so Chuck, if I can turn, make a right turn here for a moment then, and in this season, as, um, as this comes out, we're going to still be in the pandemic because we may be in the pandemic forever. I have no idea. But um, but in this season, you know, ministry is already hard, right? It's already hard to, to lead, to serve. And even if you're doing your best to be as healthy as a leader as you can, um, there's just so many added layers of of stress and uncertainty and anxiety. Um, what are you seeing as you talk to pastors and leaders these days? Uh, one, I'm, I'm assuming that you're you would echo that that you're seeing that it's been that that people are struggling, leaders are struggling. I'm I'm seeing nowadays, like just given what you just described, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think a second civil rights movement of sorts going yeah. on, a, a, a real reckoning um, mm. with racial injustice in this country, um, mm. widening divisions and polarizations, you know, to the yeah. point where, to the point where even like black leaders who've been doing social justice in the church, um, 
I'm seeing become more and more discouraged as they're called Marxists and they're like, I, yeah. I'm just seeing things happen that I don't know that any of us could have seen even six months ago. And, right. and with that, um, kind of a, an increasing sense of, I, I think I was maybe barely hanging on by my fingernails a year ago. I've definitely mm. fallen off and, mm. um, I'm, I'm kind of reeling at this point. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I think that there was a sense a year ago as I was talking to pastors that, man, it's hard. There are lots of questions I'm hanging on, but you know, I'm, I'm battling a little depression, anxiety, sense of my own emptiness, questions about the church. Now, mm. now even more, there is, I'm exhausted. I'm not sure I can be a pastor much longer. I have a real mm. concern about, about, uh, the pastoral vocation going forward. And, um, mm. uh, Never before have we seen the possibility of church splits over whether or not wearing a mask is acceptable. You know, yeah. um, these are the kinds of things that uh, I had two conversations with pastors today about, you know, and so this is just the reality mm. right now. Um, uh, yeah. So it's that the state of the union is not good. <laughs> um, mm. And yet there's a curiosity like you have and I have about let's have conversations about this. Yeah. And so, so someone's listening to this and they're like, on the one hand, they might, might be in, in some way even encouraged to say, oh, okay, wow, I'm not, it's not just something's wrong with me. Yeah. You know, that my feelings of, of discouragement, even despondence are, yeah. um, I'm not alone in that. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What what uh, counsel or encouragement? What, yeah. Perhaps practices, rhythms. What? Yeah. Not, not, we're not looking for you know a band aid yep. or a uh, you know a magic cure all. But yeah. what can help uh, leaders that are just hanging on or or aren't even sure they are hanging on? Yeah, I think in this season, um, I'm using the language of trauma more. I think small mm. T trauma, not PTSD, not kind of mm. post-war trauma that was so much a part of the conversation, but small T trauma, the kind of cumulative mm. trauma that happens with steady blows to your body over the course of time in ministry. Um, mm. There are a lot of pastors who have broad shoulders and have taken a lot, but they're out of gas, you know, mm -hmm. and... Um, so I've been pretty clear to say your body's in trauma. And and a number of them will say to me, well, what, what does that mean? I said, mm -hmm. well, it means that you're exhibiting certain symptoms and your anxiety and your depression and your uh, irritable bowel syndrome and your um, mm -hmm. stiff shoulders and your irritability and your anger and um, that are um, that, that means that you're kind of your your volume level, the bo your your body's reactivity level is at mm -hmm. level 15 out of 10. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And we need to do what we need to do to kind of dial that down to more like a four or five. So mm. I want you to engage contemplative practices. Um, mm. I often ask people right away to download an app like Calm or Headspace um, mm. to begin to do breathing exercise and body scans to begin to dial down that act that uh, that interactivity, that limbic system, mm. anxious activity in their brain um, because they're body is essentially in trauma mode. So how do we get you mm. from trauma mode to a more centered place? Mm. Um, that requires um, great awareness and great intentionality. Like you actually mm. have to engage in exercises and work and in therapy to, to do this. It's not yeah. going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen if you read A.W. Tozer every morning. It's not, mm. it's just not going to happen. 
by kind of just continuing to do your normal practices, um, you, you're going to have to stop and breathe for 20 minutes every morning and practice centering prayer. You're going to have to do yeah. a body scan at noon. Like, so I'm prescri- I'm very, becoming very prescriptive, Richard, in terms of like, yeah. um, reckon with your body, get into a yoga class. Um, mm. uh, I, I, um, uh, one of my practices going back probably six months or, or so ago, when I started to feel my anxiety ramp up was, um, uh, not to be legalistic, but, uh, no alcohol during the week. Um, mm. I just know in this season, it's very easy for me because of my relationship to alcohol to, to go to it. Um, and so mm. I got to just stop and take care of my body mm. and, um, drink tea and breathe and go to bed at 1030 for me to mm. do the work I'm doing right now and be helpful yeah. to other people. So that's so helpful, Chuck. And I, those are conversations I've been having too with, with some leaders and saying, look, if, if the stress level is higher yep. and it unquestionably is in this season, then the self-care needs to increase. Yeah. And that is often, again, counterintuitive to leaders who are like, but, but I need to do more or I yeah. need to work harder. Yep. And, but if there's not uh, healthiness inside of you, then you're not going to be able to be helpful or help That's uh, right. to other people. Right. Yep. In fact, uh, Chuck, it's so contemplative prayer. You, since you brought it up, um, yeah. is, uh, a practice, of course, at Wellspring that people are yeah, going to have good. heard us talk about. But you actually have a course, an online course on it, don't you? Yes, I do. Thanks for thanks for that. It's like yeah. free advertising. That's um, right. But it very, I think it's very helpful. Um, yeah. I I recorded it in my basement. Um, it's not a, uh, it's it's not studio produced. <laughs> so just as a <laughs> disclaimer, but um, it's a five video course where I teach a bit on contemplative prayer, uh, the, the tradition of contemplative prayer, why it matters, how it yeah. intersects with our neurobiology and our, our trauma. Um, and so I teach on it, how to practice it, how often to do it. I offer some resources, in other words, some books and some websites that you can continue to do work in or around or apps and things like that, that are a part of it, that are a part of like a, a normal diet of self-care. And so, mm. um, yeah, it's a teachable course. Uh, you find it on my website, chuckdegrowth.net, but I also have a COVID like discount for 75% off just the word COVID and people can, um, get 75% off. Uh, so it's like 25 oh. bucks to buy it. So that's great. Yeah. So, uh, Chuck DeGroat and we'll, uh, we'll link to it, uh, yeah. as well on here and, uh, chuckdegrowth.net and of course on contemplative prayer, of course, uh, highly recommend your book when narcissism mm. comes to church, but also you've written a number of other things on wholeheartedness, yeah. uh, leaving Egypt. Um, and yeah. And, and you, uh, post f- fairly regularly, don't you, on your, um, on your site. I mean, yeah. you're busy these days, but yeah, maybe. yeah, I do. So yeah, I've, I mean the book that, um, uh, probably gets shadowed by the whole narcissism conversation, but actually reflects the journey to wholeness is, is the book wholeheartedness, you know, and that Mm. that's got a lot of my heart in it. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I, I try to talk about these things and talk about being healthy on social media and stuff like that. Um, as much as I can try to contribute to a conversation that is uh, directed toward wholeheartedness. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm also, uh, busy doing my own work to stay wholehearted in the midst sure. of that, you know? So, 
Well, and I'll just uh, throw another one out there, Chuck. I uh, I got your um, your Lenten devotion this last year, and oh, yeah. did it myself, and I just found it extremely beneficial. It yeah. was just a really uh, grounding. And mm. in fact, because you, you talked a lot about that, returning to the yeah. ground of our yeah. being yeah. in Lent, yeah. so good. Yeah. So yeah, thanks. For um, that. Yeah. Well, as we get ready to wrap up, I, I just I, I like to end our our podcast a little bit with with hope and encouragement for good. people. And so I've offered some very practical things here. But what is it that as you look forward uh, in in this next season in the church, in which yeah. you have a lot of fingerprints in lots of different places in the church. Yeah. What, what gives you the most hope and encouragement these yeah. days? Um, this is going to sound like a strange answer maybe. And like I'm spiritually bypassing and um, getting unnecessarily theological, but I'm, I'll take a shot at it because I've been thinking about it and it's that um, God is not anxious like we're anxious mm. about any of this stuff, that God is secure. That's not an attribute of God that I learned in seminary. I learned lots of words about God. It, security wasn't one of them, but <laughs> I just imagine a patient father, mother, uh, think of the prodigal son story, you know, doesn't go chasing mm. after his son, doesn't go trying to track him down, isn't on Life 360 on his phone looking at where his location <laughs> is, you know, but mm. really patient and and is able to hold the tensions that we resist, you know, the disorientation of life. The um, And I, I think more and more as I, I see these things unfold and as I feel anxiety in my own body grow, I, I sort of want God to be more anxious, like I'm anxious. and like, let's let's just fix this right now. And it's sort of like, mm-hmm. I'm, no, I've actually been doing this for a long, long time. I think God says, you know, and things have unfolded and there's been pain and hundreds of years of exile. And um, that's how we grow up. Um, and and the first book I wrote was about that wilderness journey, you know, a journey that was supposed to take 11 days and took 40 years. And I think I'm just realizing as I get a little bit older that, and as I, I had to reckon with it, 50 not being where I wanted to be, the sense of, oh, it's just okay. It just takes longer. And that's, that's okay. And I, that's a strange way to frame hope, but I'm, I'm hopeful that God is uh, not at all surprised by what's going on by our polarization. And God is not anxiously tweeting like I tweet, you know, and God is just, (laughs) just um, much more uh, well holds us in a way that is inexplicable. And um, I'm living into that mystery. Mm. Yeah. That's a really helpful word, Chuck. And it reminds me of I, something I heard attributed to Dallas Willard not long before he died, where because Dallas didn't shy away from naming what he saw as problematic in the yeah, church yeah. and uh, and was asked a similar question. What is he? Ho- how could he be so hopeful? And he said, well, because it's Jesus church and Jesus yeah. knows what he's doing. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah. I forget that. And I'm like, well, yeah. but I have to help. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Leslie um, Newbigin, you, you know this one from Leslie Newbigin, right? I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Um, oh, that's so good. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's sort of like it, it, it is. Um, mm. So let's just live into that hope, you know? Um, so mm. I, yeah. And I, I'm grateful for you. And um, I, I think it's, Friendships like yours, where we, mm. we're not close friends, you know, but we've mm. known each other and we have these intersections where 
I, I don't know what it is, why it's so life giving, but like a, a picture popped up from an evening at your house where uh. I was just, I was there for maybe a few days and we were talking about some things and um, just feeling like that was a night where I felt loved and safe mm. and among friends and mm. that that's, those things are really beautiful and really possible um, uh, w- with one another. So I'm thankful for you and, and this new work you're engaged in too. Mm, wow. Well, yeah. that means more than I can even express, Chuck. You've, you are a gift uh, to me and, and to the church. And this book uh, is most recent one, as much as it might be uncomfortable for some, is, is such a needed word. And, um, and just we can't, we can't move forward until we name what is real and what is true. And that's so uh, important. And, and it's not just a diagnosis. I think there you, you really do help people say, well, okay, where do I go from here in very practical and life-giving ways? So, so thank you, Chuck. Thank you for what you do. Yeah. And uh, I am truly grateful for you. Yeah. And yeah, God bless you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love to serve you in any way we can at Wellspring. For more information about who we are and what we do, please go to wellspringca.org or look us up on Facebook. Just search under Wellspring. Until next time, grace and peace.